0: again as that one who can mold the clay and alter the nature of reality in such a way that he's healing men and women blind and lame he's able to do that he made it in the first place everything is under his command but why is he doing it this way here we are to learn to learn his purposes so that we might live them Matthew 12 Jesus just taught about the sabbath and how he is Lord of the Sabbath, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so sometimes with laws he would become more rigid, and sometimes with laws he would become more laxed. Only in reference to people's misinterpretation. He was more rigid on marriage than the Pharisees, because they misunderstood the law of marriage. But he was more relaxed on the Sabbath, not because he was relaxing the Sabbath, but because the Pharisees were wrong on the Sabbath. They were too rigid. Sometimes they were too rigid. Sometimes they were too liberal. Jesus is right down the middle right because, as we said, he wrote the book. It's his laws. And now we find him. Naturally, arrogant religious people don't like to be corrected. And so they conspired how they could harm him. And we find In verse 15, that Jesus decided to withdraw. Because it's not yet time for him to go to the cross. Even though he does know how this will end. Jesus, it says, aware of this, that they conspired against him. Withdrew from there. And many followed him. And he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. Imagine that. Jesus is saying, Don't tell people who I am. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him. And then the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed. They were surprised by this demonstration. Of the Spirit. They were surprised by the Spirit and said, Can this be the son of David, the Messiah to come? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And there is the Word of the Lord, presented before us this morning. And it is an episode in which people are, again, surprised by the Spirit of God working in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This man was lame. He was blind in the sense he couldn't uh, see. Lame in the sense he was blind. Lame in the sense that he was not able to hear. God heals him. And everyone's amazed, they pause, and they wonder, what is this? What power is among us? And Jesus interprets this as a unique demonstration of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has come to you. The surprise is a misconception that the... Old Testament saints who understood the scriptures assumed that God's kingdom would come and that the day of the Lord would come at the same time. So if the Messiah, the king, the one they reference here as, could this be the son of David? If the king, the son of David comes, then therefore the day of the Lord will come, and everything will be consummated and finished. The kingdom of heaven will fully be revealed. The surprise was, is that the kingdom was coming, yet the day of the Lord had not come. They were staggered. They were set apart. And this is the shock, the amazement, to be surprised. In Colossians 1, Paul, the apostle Paul, who is a well-trained Jewish Pharisee who is thinking the same way as the Pharisees that Jesus is resisting in this chapter, explains this now after coming to see the light of Christ. Where he says, the mysteries were hidden in ages and generations before but now they have been revealed to the saints to make known the riches of the glory of God, which is this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1. That's Paul reinterpreting it all to say this was a mystery. Everyone who was looking for the Messiah, the, the scriptures were intentionally not clear enough so that anyone could irrefutably deduce from the scriptures that this was the case. That there was to be a giving of the Holy Spirit in such a great way and measure that Christ in you, the Spirit of God in you, is your hope of glory. This was a mystery. No one saw this coming. No one knew it would be this way. This is what it means when we say they are being surprised surprised by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how it is being demonstrated in Jesus' life. This was not according to the plan. So the Pharisees, they're not doing, Jesus isn't doing anything the way the Pharisees expected and so they conspire on how to harm him. And Jesus, after healing these people, says this, he ordered them not to make him known. This is what we call the secret Messiah. Jesus is deliberately being secretive. And you would think, that makes no sense. I thought we were supposed to tell the whole world about Jesus. Not here, not now, not in this time. Jesus is deliberately being secretive because he knows there are Pharisees who are misinterpreting him. And they seek to harm him. And he knows his own disciples and everyone else has not connected these dots. They are not to know about him because they don't know him fully. And he doesn't want anyone talking about him because they'll misrepresent him. Every time he says this, in Matthew 8, there is a leper he cleanses. And he says, now don't say this to anybody. In Matthew 9, there's two blind men. And he says, now don't tell anyone who did this to you. Later on, from where we read in Matthew 16, Peter's confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, yes, good job. Now, don't tell anybody that. Because you have no idea what you're talking about. You see? And shortly later, Peter gets rebuked for being satanic. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because he's telling Jesus not to go to the cross. So Paul gets it partially right to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, and then, Jesus says, now you sit on that. Because you have no idea what you just said. It wasn't until what? When are we told to start talking about Jesus? When the Spirit comes down. It wasn't until Matthew 28, at the very end of the whole gospel, where Jesus particularly says, It is time now, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you to the end of the age. And wait in Jerusalem till you receive power from on high. And then I will reveal all things to you They will be clear to you. The things I spoke to you in secret you will say on the mountaintop. Things that you didn't understand, things will be called to your recollection. You can go out and say all these things now because the Spirit will come inside of you and dwell inside of you and you will have the mind of God. No one knows the mind of a man except for the spirit of man. I don't know your private thoughts. They are your spiritual thoughts between your own ears. But we have been given the Spirit of Christ. We have been given the mind of God. We have been given a certain light, an illumination from the inside, so that we can actually have the wisdom to know who God really is. And then from that position, go and proclaim Him. This was the plan from the beginning. And it all starts with Jesus These people are surprised by the Spirit. Jesus is selected by the Spirit. Matthew goes on to say that Jesus fulfilled everything that was written in Isaiah 42, which he quotes and says, My servant I have chosen, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I will put my Spirit on him. You see, Jesus' whole ministry as Messiah starts with him being given, selected, elected, chosen by the Spirit to be the one. The one who can do it all. Who can heal the blind, the lame, but also raise the dead and cover every sin and cleanse the world and save new heavens and new earth to full restoration. This is the one. There is no one like this one. He has been given the Spirit. I will put my spirit on him. When the spirit came on people before, the spirit came on Samson. And he became very powerful and strong in the book of Judges. And he killed everybody. When the spirit was on him, you see. Tremendous power. But look what happens with this Messiah. The spirit comes upon him. And he redeems everybody. It's not a spirit of violence. It's not a spirit for judgment. Isaiah goes on to say, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will not quarrel or cry out. He will not resist. The Pharisees are seeking to harm him, and he is running away. He is not here to fight. If he was here to fight, they'd all be in a lot of trouble. But he's not here to fight. He, you will not hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed, Isaiah says, he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you see? A bruised reed. There's thousands of reeds along the edge of any river. If one of them's broken, if one of them's cracked, who cares? Throw it away and get another reed. If you want to use it for a stick or a measuring rod. Or flute. Whatever you use a reed for. If you want another one, go get another one. Not Jesus. There is a tenderness to Christ. If you are broken. Do you see? If you are broken, if you are cracked. If you have no purpose. And no one else thinks you're valuable. You're the one he came for. That's why the Spirit is upon Him. You serve no purpose for anyone else. But you serve every purpose for Him. He came down for you. For you. A smoldering wick. At the edge, the end life of a candle that has nothing left and isn't giving any light in its wick and just smoldering and stinking up the whole house. Remember what it's like to be annoyed by that. They didn't have electricity. If this candle's not working, what do you have in your house when you want light? Except now just a smoky, stinky thing that gives no light. Throw the candle out, it's useless. If that's you, do you hear the gospel now? If that's you, he is here for you. If your life stinks. If you are useless. And you have no light at all. That is why he came. He has been given the spirit. And he will not cast you out. If you come to him this way. He is empowered by the spirit. For this very reason. So there is a demon-oppressed man, a man who is useless, his mind is probably gone, he's blind and mute, and he healed him. The man began to speak and to see. All the people were amazed to say, what is this work of the Spirit among us? And the Pharisees respond and say, it is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The word Beelzebul has its roots in the Canaanite god Baal of Ekron in the Old Testament, which was nothing more than a demon god that people sacrificed their babies to. And it became a, a phrase that captured the very throne of darkness, Satan himself, Beelzebul. And Jesus, we're told, knowing their thoughts knowing their thoughts, said every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided can stand. If Satan is fighting against Satan, how could he stand if he is divided? Now he says this, that the Spirit of God working in his ministry is the kingdom of God come to the earth. He interprets it. He reinterprets their interpretation and says, if By the Spirit of God, I cast out demons? Then be aware, know now, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here now. It is before you. If you reach out your hand, you can touch it. For I am the King, and I am anointed with power from on high. I have been given the Spirit without measure, and I rule and I reign. And by one word, I cast demons out. And by one word, I heal bodies. I control any domain in which I walk. The kingdom of God has come. The Holy Spirit is that kingdom. So you and I must understand the kingdom of God is now. We are in the age of the Spirit. Martin Luther, the reformer, was once asked, what... Would you do, what would you do if you knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? What would you do if you knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? And he said, I would plant a tree. I would plant a tree. What he meant by that is that everything matters because of the Holy Spirit given to us. Your most mundane task, every work that you put your hand to, it all matters. If Jesus were to come back today, I would plant a tree. I would go about my work. I would make an influence in the real physical world, planting trees, because it all matters. Corinthians 15 Says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, your work in the Lord is labor that is not in vain. Do you see? 2,000 years ago, the kingdom was coming. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was performing a work. 2,000 years ago, the power of the Spirit was moving. And it is the same today. The Spirit has been given to us. And everything we do matters. We are moving. We need to have a view of time. We need to have an eschatology. We need to know what we're about. You were made for thousands and thousands and thousands of years from now. And the things you do this moment today have effect there. If you plant a tree today here, it's important there. Because all of your labor in the Lord, as the Holy Spirit is working, Working in you to perform the good works he's planned before you. The foundation of the world. It is working to that end. And so you have to see that everything you do is important because the kingdom has already come 2,000 years ago in Christ. It is come and it is coming. It is in the process of coming. It is, and we get to Matthew 13 shortly. Jesus will explain all this through parable. He will explain about the small seed that becomes a large tree, he will explain about the leaven that was worked through the dough and no one saw it and expanded to a great piece of large large loaf of bread. He is saying it is all mattered and it is all secretive. You didn't see the leaven. You didn't know that seed was under the ground. It doesn't look very important. It doesn't look very spectacular. But the end result is glory. Glorification. The fullness of the kingdom to come. The way he's going to do this is with Zero compromise. And this is where it gets interesting. Jesus explains. See, we are at war. Obviously, we know. It's the kingdom of an excluded middle. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus' kingdom is taking no prisoners, there is no treaty, there is no armistice, there is no middle ground. In the war with Russia right now, Romania is not at war with Russia. Russia is at war with Ukraine. So Russia and Ukraine have an either-or relationship. But Romania is neutral. Jesus' war upon the world, the invasion of his kingdom into this age, is all. There is no middle ground. There is no third party that watches the war passively from the side and says, that's not my fight. Jesus is saying this, if you are not with me, you are against me. It is perfectly, absolutely imperial. He is here to take it all. And he will compromise with none. And if you think you're not fighting against Jesus, that would make you fighting against Jesus. Because the only way you're not fighting against Jesus is if you are with Jesus. Anyone who is not with me is against me. We don't like the idea of imperialism because we don't think a nation should have the right to just exact its will and extend its power indefinitely. Which is true. But when you are the king of the world and you made it all, it is exactly his right to take back what is his. And exactly how is he doing it? By taking back what the devil stole. You see, he's freeing men. He's liberating demoniacs. He is taking darkness out of the world. And to not be on the side of darkness and to be on the side of light is to win. But if you think that you're not playing in either's, I'm not in Satan's camp and I'm not in Jesus' camp, You are in Satan's camp because there is no other domain between these two. This is the war of wars. This is what Jesus is fighting. And if you are not with him, you are against him. And he says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. A farmer scatters seed and then harvests and brings it in as a gather. A farmer scatters sheep but then gathers them together as a flock. You can't do one or the other. They are absolutely opposed to one another. Yesterday we had an Easter egg hunt. Adults came earlier, maybe around an hour early, and they all took the Easter eggs. And they went out into the back, and they scattered them everywhere. And then about an hour later, all the kids showed up. And it was fun. And actually, the weather kept so many people away. I told them, like, kids, this is going to be the best Easter egg hunt of your life. (laughs) There was like 650 eggs back there. And like half of the people registered didn't show up. And I was like, you kids, the, listen, I, I guarantee they're going to be driving home and be like, mom and dad are talking about the economy is bad and gas. I'm like, the egg, the egg economy is doing great. It's doing great. I don't understand what we're talking about. This is the best year ever. So it was awesome. Scatter them everywhere. And the kids come and gather them. But you can't scatter and gather. Jesus' point is, this is the kingdom of the excluded middle there is no middle ground. Either you're working with me or you're working against me. Either you're gathering with me or you're ruining it all and you're scattering it with everywhere. Either you're building the kingdom or you're tearing down the kingdom. He says, there is no middle. Either I cast, either I cast out demons by the spirit of God. And they claim that he is doing it by the spirit of Satan. And Jesus is saying, there is no middle. It doesn't work like that. This is the law of the excluded middle. And a side note, because I, I labored this very heavily in youth group a few weeks ago, so much so one of the youth group helpers was like, Are you, you came on pretty heavy about that. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it again now. If you're younger, if you're younger and you're not married and you think maybe you might get married someday, 2 Corinthians six fourteen, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Same word as Be- Beelzebub. What portion has the believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are a temple of the living God. If the spirit of God dwells in you, if you are yoked to Christ, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, you cannot be yoked to an unbeliever. I don't always take a demographic side on a sermon, but really, if you're younger and not married, read that verse all the time. It there is no way. There is no way. How could light? Listen to the terms: righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and Satan, believer and unbeliever, worshiping demons in an idol, worshiping the one true God in the temple. These two things cannot mix. It is an excluded middle. This is the world we live. And this is how we also structure our lives, our churches, our society. The kingdom has come and is coming in Jesus' ministry. With the time we have, we'll look at this most controversial and also very important passage where Jesus begins to speak about what it is like to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. See, the kingdom comes this way. The kingdom comes through the speaking of the gospel. And we're told in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if you do that, you will be saved. That is, you will enter into the kingdom, and then when that kingdom comes and invades upon you, you will not be destroyed. Because the gospel comes in such a way that is, Jesus Christ is king. Repent now, and you will be spared. But you've already lost. There's no need to fight. And so the gospel is that, Confess now that Jesus is Lord or he will make you confess that he is Lord. See, the beginning of it, the beginning of it is a gracious call. Now fall on your knees. He will never break a broken reed further. He will never cast out a smoldering reed. He is a gracious good king. This is the moment now. This is the hour of peace. Repent and confess his lordship and you will be saved. The kingdom is coming. There's a herald. The gospel is the pre-herald to the fullness of the kingdom and the unmatched power that comes behind it. And so Paul says in Romans 14 that the kingdom of heaven consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you are dwelt by the Spirit of God now, if you have submitted to Jesus Christ now by His Spirit, if you experience the fellowship and joy of knowing God by His Spirit now, and you have righteousness, joy, and peace now, you have already touched the foothills of the mountain. You have entered into the kingdom and you are experiencing the foretastes of the age to come. And you are experiencing God and all His goodness and glory. The kingdom of glory has come to dwell inside you. That is what Paul calls the kingdom in Romans 14. And so therefore, if that's what's happening, if that's what the Spirit's doing now, going out into the world and possessing men, then we must not resist Him. To resist this is to resist the great plan and power of God for all ages. Why would you run up against that? It would be much easier to just go with it. And so Jesus' warning is, do not resist the Holy Spirit. Every sin you ever could commit can be forgiven. But to resist the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we are told, is different. Every sin, he says, and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Yet whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, he says, will not be forgiven. Notice Jesus does not say whoever speaks against the Son of God will be forgiven. He particularly says, whoever speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Jesus' phrase for himself most commonly was, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is an intentionally enigmatic phrase. Who is the Son of Man? Oh, I'm a son of a man, and you're the Son of a man. We all look like men, we're all sons of men. So how is Jesus so special as being called the Son of Man? So he's saying... I deliberately have cloaked myself. I've hidden myself. I've asked people not to talk about myself. I've asked people not to reveal myself. I've kept myself at this time so much so secret. And I am obviously the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. So I can't fault you for not necessarily accepting me. You could even speak against me. And I'll forgive that. Because I do look just like a son of man. And even on the cross, as they hung him there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they they don't know what they're doing. They think they're just killing this rebel of Rome. They have no idea. Father, just forgive them. So forgiveness is extended. Extended because they just don't know. And Jesus doesn't fault them for that. But he flips it and says, But if you speak poorly of the Holy Spirit of God, If you blaspheme God's Spirit, there is no forgiveness for you. There is a line, there is a place to cross in which there is nothing, because it is done in a particular way. Defining it this way, to continually deny the work of the Holy Spirit and attribute it to Satan. For that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They see the goodness of God and His Spirit working through the ministry of Jesus. They look at it and they say, Evil, it's demonic, it's bad. That itself, right there, is what's being talked about. And I would add one to that to say, not just continually denying the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing it to Satan, but knowingly continue in denial of the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing to Satan. In Scripture, our knowledge makes us culpable. Last chapter, Jesus goes to Chorazin and Bethsaida and says, your judgment is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon because you know more. Your judgment is worse. See... The idea that someone could blaspheme against the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is what illuminates our minds to God. What reveals God on the inner side of our humanity. So if you are eschewing that revelation of God, you are exposing yourself to tremendous culpability. Because it's not just a man with a beard and brown hair that's a carpenter's son in Israel. You could have walked by Jesus in the first century and not been at fault for missing his glory. But you cannot come in contact with the eternal Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Age is coming, the Spirit that is ushering in the new heavens and new earth, and experience any of that goodness, and then all of a sudden say, oh, I hate it. If you hate that, there is no hope for you. If you hate that, you hate what is truly life. And you could not possibly have anything other. Because this is the Spirit that gives you forgiveness. If you reject that Spirit, how could you be forgiven? There's three principles in Scripture you find. In Numbers 15, we're told and we're warned about the sin of a high hand. A high-handed sin is a big deal in Numbers 15, 30. You could have a sin where you don't exactly know that you did it, or you have a blind spot or a place where you were uh, not thinking clearly. But when you know what you're doing, and you deliberately rebel against God... Numbers 15.30 says a high-handed sin, those who commit high-handed sins will be cut off and their iniquity will be upon them. That reality means that there in the Old Testament time was no sacrifice left. You couldn't go and offer a goat. You couldn't go and offer a bull. The only times high-handed sins were ever fixed in Scripture is when Moses or Aaron or one of the priests stepped in and prayed directly to God on someone else's behalf and said, Lord, please do not kill them. Do not destroy them. Six or seven times in scripture that happens. Israel commits a very high-handed sin. They make a golden calf. They murmur and they get bitten by snakes. And then, and then Moses stands in the middle and says, Lord, There's no bull for this. There's no goat for this. This is it. I don't know how you haven't killed him yet. Just don't. Please. And he stops. But it's pushing. Do you see these high-handed sins? They push the limit. They even push the limit of the sacrificial system that Israel was given. Where it's almost saying, you are on thin ice. And so Moses makes a, a copper snake for them, and they all look to the snake, and everyone who's bitten with the poison doesn't die. And obviously, you see where that is going that there is a snake came into our slithering bodies and hung himself on a tree for us. Hebrews 6 warns it's impossible. Hebrews 6 4, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. You notice that language of knowledge? Been enlightened. Tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, then to have fallen away to be restored again to repentance. Hebrews 6. Do you see how the knowledge makes it worse? It's impossible for the one who has been enlightened. Your mind, you have become to a, a deeper knowledge of God and yet you still reject him. It's impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted. You have an experiential tasting type of knowledge of the heavenly gift. You've shared, he says, shared. You have experiential knowledge. You shared in the Holy Spirit. Short of actually being regenerate from the Holy Spirit. Short of actually being born again from above. But you have been close to the Spirit. You grew up in the church. You saw miracles or whatever. You've actually experienced something of the good. You've seen someone's life transformed and you experienced, you came so close to seeing the goodness of the Holy Spirit actively working in this world and you still rejected it. That is dangerous. That is dangerous. Tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. You've sat under preaching again and again and it is good preaching that is giving you the Word of God and you say, I don't want that. That tastes bad to me. That is the warning to say, with that level of knowledge, that exposure to the goodness of God in his word, by his spirit, even, and here it is, the powers of the age to come. You can even experience some of the powers of the age to come now. And if you don't like them, then how could you be forgiven? Because you're only going to get more of them. Because this is the age that is coming, whether you want it or not. And if you don't want that age... Well, that's the age where the mediator sits on the throne. And he's the only one that can take away your sin. And if you don't want that, there remains no forgiveness for you. I think that's what's going on here with Jesus. Because we're told that Jesus knows their thoughts, you see. 12.24, from what we read, the Pharisees said, they said, you see... The Pharisees said, It's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that they cast out demons. The next verse says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus goes on to say, A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus was not just reacting to what they said, Jesus knows what they know. Jesus knows. That they're seeing something beautiful here. Jesus knows that they're seeing something of the kingdom of God. And they're knowingly rejecting it. John Calvin says, They sin against the Holy Spirit, who with evil intentions resist God's truth, although by its brightness, the brightness, they are so touched that they cannot claim ignorance. You have come so close to God and you have even experienced some of the goodness of God so that you can never claim ignorance. How could there be forgiveness left when you would reject the spirit of grace and forgiveness now in the age? Think of an analogy. I remember art class and the chaos that was in school, which was a lot of fun. But imagine two friends, and this really is about the master artisan of Christ. Imagine two children who are friends in an art class, and they're given the assignment to sculpt the head of a man. They're trying to form human figure. And one of The children is truly gifted and begins to take the clay and mold it and form it and it matches the skeletal structure of a head and the bone. The eyes are perfectly proportioned, the mouth is center, the ridge of the nose is exact, the jawline, the details, the skin, the ears it all forms under his fingers like no other kid in the class. It's truly gifted. When that comes out of the kiln and the product is finally finished, all the other kids in the class flock. And they come around and say, this is amazing. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's perfect. Look at this, what you made. This is beautiful art. No one in the class has formed it this way. This is Formed and fashioned as it should be. This represents a real humanity. This is what a face like that would look like. And then his other friend watches this whole time as this happens. And the kiln comes out to produce this image. And as all the other kids are looking at it and saying it is beautiful, it is amazing. He chimes up and just says, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's not that good. Actually, it's pretty bad. I would have done it better than that. And then, in his mind, a flicker of a thought, he says to his own heart, That is beautiful art. Do you see? What's left for you now? You know the truth. You know. This master artisan has arrived. He found a man who can't see. He can't hear. He's possessed and oppressed by demons. And he comes. And he molds his eyes, fixes his ears, causes him to stand up straight like a man. And all the other kids come. And the Pharisees say, That's hideous. That's disgusting. What is left? How could you look at the goodness of God and say, when you know it's beautiful, you know the gospel's beautiful, you know this is true, you know you've seen people's lives change, you've seen the power of the age to come, you've experienced, tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and to say, no, I know... I don't like that. And then God, Jesus knows your thoughts. And in your mind, you say to yourself, Oh, it is beautiful. I wish it were true. Because you know it is true. You could reject beauty because you do not see beauty. But you also could reject beauty because you hate beauty. You could reject truth because you have not yet seen the truth. Or you could reject truth because you hate truth. How could you possibly be forgiven when you have to repent and believe unto truth? But it is a truth that you hate. There is no forgiveness for your sins. You could reject light because you can't see the light yet. Or you could reject light like a mole in a hole because you hate light. You could reject the Son of Man because he looks like just a man. But you cannot reject the illumination of the Holy Spirit unless you knowingly reject the goodness of the eternal God revealed in our age. That is a dangerous thing. But the only way that you know you haven't done this is because you're not doing it if you're worried about committing this sin that can't be forgiven, well, then you haven't committed it because you care and you love him. If you don't, there's only one solution. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel and you will be saved too. This is the power of the age to come. If you are guilty over your sins, remember, a bruised reed he will not cast out. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. If you are not grieved over your sins, that is the time to grieve the most. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through this church. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship you've given to us by your spirit. And Lord, we do love you, and we love the reality that you have come for those who are broken, for those who are humble, for those small children, for those whose lives stink, for those who produce no light, for those who are broken, for those who are splintered. Lord, we confess that is us, and you are our love, our, our Savior, our Lord. Let us sing, Lord, with everything we have, because you're worthy and we love you. Amen.